We pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, you who, who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's scientifically proven that starting your sermon with a loud, slow prayer is the best way to, to quiet a room. So, brothers and sisters in Jesus, um, the word witness, you know, when I say witness, what do you think of? It's interesting to look up what witness can mean. It has a couple of different meanings, and maybe the first meaning that you think of when it comes to witnessing something, it means to, to see something in person. Maybe you'd call it to witness something with your eyes eyewitness. But the second meaning of this word would be to witness about something, to tell other people about maybe what you've seen with your eyes. And maybe you would call this one witnessing with your mouth. And very often, the first type of witnessing leads to the second. Witnessing with your eyes leads to witnessing with your mouth. For example, if you witnessed a crime or if you witnessed some kind of a notorious event or a news event or whatever is happening, if you witness it, you might be asked to share your story uh, with a reporter. You might be asked to share your story in court and give your eyewitness testimony. Or for a more day-to-day -day example, like what if you're sitting on a park bench and you see something really amazing? You're sitting there, you see it, what is your instinctive reaction? You turn to the person next to you and you say, dude, did you see that? That seagull flew down and grabbed that ice cream cone straight out of that kid's hand and flew away with the whole thing. That was amazing. That poor kid. But if there's no one next to you on the bench, you see something amazing happen, first reaction is to take out your phone and you're like, who can I text? I have to tell somebody. I just saw this seagull ruin this kid's day. That poor kid. But witnessing with the eyes leads to witnessing with the mouth. You see something amazing, you've got to tell someone about it. And this was absolutely the case for Jesus' disciples. As you know, ever since Easter, we've been in this sermon series, which is called Witnesses. And as you might get a clue from the general graphics and branding of this series, we've mostly been talking about witnessing with the eyes. All right, the last five weeks, I think, we've talked about all these different people who saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead, and they saw that he was alive. Today, we shift gears into the second type of witnessing, and today we start to talk about what it means to tell others about what you have seen. Now, a prime example of this happens in Acts chapter 4. It's very shortly after the ascension account that we heard. So in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been dragged in front of the Jewish leaders, and they've been warned, they've been commanded, in fact, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John respond, with all due respect, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen. Right? Witnessing with the eyes leads to witnessing with the mouth. And in the case of Peter and John, well, it has to. Because after all, in the case of Peter and John, what has just happened here? What have they witnessed? God sent his one and only son into the world to live in the human body. And he lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He did a bunch of miracles to draw people's attention. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And then God validated it 
by raising him from the dead, and he appeared to all of these eyewitnesses. But this is more than just a news story from Passover weekend a few years ago, Peter and John are saying. This is more than just a religious belief that we happen to share. What have they witnessed? This is real forgiveness from God. Real membership in God's family, real eternal life waiting for us in heaven, and it's been provided in real time. They're saying, in our generation, in our city, not long ago, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The things that happened with Jesus of Nazareth are the most important things ever to happen in the history of the world. The entire book of Acts is full of conversations like this. It's full of witnessing. And as you read through the book of Acts, you recognize that Jesus' prophecy, Jesus' last words to his disciples are being fulfilled. Um, we had the kids up here a few minutes ago. We talked about the helium balloons. We talked about Jesus ascending into heaven. And did you notice Jesus' last words, his final line before he went up? This is what he said. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts, we see that they were. They were. So, what about you? Are you a witness for Jesus? Are you a witness for Jesus? If you are a Christian, then the answer is yes. If you have faith in your heart in Jesus, then the answer is yes. Um, we have different stories. We have different personalities. We might have different comfort levels in talking to people about our faith. Maybe we don't have a lot of stories of talking to people about our faith. But if you have faith in Jesus in your heart, then you are a witness. Because witnessing with the eyes, especially in something this important, it always leads to witnessing with the mouth. There's no other option. How can we help speaking about what we have seen and heard? So you're a witness. How does that make you feel? Do you feel like privileged, very proud, I get to be a witness? Does it make you feel a little bit nervous, inadequate, uh, overwhelmed? In our sermon text today, we are going to see an example of the Apostle Paul witnessing to his faith. And as we read through this example, I pray that God's Holy Spirit will move each one of our hearts to look at this witnessing and say, this is something I can do. This is something I can do. So our sermon text today comes from the end of Acts. It comes from Acts chapter 25 towards the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And if you know the Apostle Paul, you know that his career was full of planting churches throughout the Mediterranean world. And what's happened by Acts 25 is it's finally caught up to him. The Jewish leaders have arrested him. They've handed him over to the Roman governor, whose name is Festus. They are clamoring to have Paul killed. And so Paul has made use of his unique right as a Roman citizen, and he has appealed to Caesar to have an, a special trial before Emperor Nero in Rome. So this is what's going to happen is Paul is kind of being held in prison, awaiting this journey to Rome. But this whole situation has put the governor named Festus in an unusual position because he's about to send Paul to Rome to stand before the emperor, but he doesn't have any actual charges to charge him with. 
Paul hasn't broken any Jewish laws. Paul hasn't broken any Roman laws. Festus is not sure what to do with this prisoner. So he keeps him in jail, and he meets with him and talks to him, and he sends him back to jail, and he's like, man, what should I do? And then one day, the Jewish king Agrippa comes through for a visit, and he offers to help Festus out. He says, let me listen to this prisoner named Paul. Maybe we can figure out together what to do. And so that's the context for our sermon text today. Paul is brought in to the courtroom before the governor, Festus, the king, Agrippa, all these different officials are there, and they're trying to see what should they make of his unusual case, what should they do with Paul. And really what this is, is it's the best opportunity any Christian has had yet to witness to their faith on a major public stage. So, with that introduction, our sermon text is going to be Paul's defense statement, and we're going to treat this a little bit differently. This is going to be a little bit of a different sermon this morning. I want you to think of it as though you are watching a video or you're listening to a recording of the court proceedings. So we'll say, here's Paul's defense, and let's like watch the first few minutes of it, and then we'll press pause, and we'll say, what is he doing? And as we start, right away, I want you to look for two things that Paul is doing as he witnesses. The first thing he's doing is he's staying calm and clear and reasonable. And by acting that way, he ends up, even though he's the prisoner on trial, he gets the whole courtroom full of people listening to him and, and respecting him. Calm, clear, and reasonable. The second thing that Paul does is he reads the room. He doesn't just throw a bunch of truth bombs out there and say, take it or leave it, mic drop, I'm out. He's listening very carefully, and he's watching the people as he's talking to them, and he wants to be clear so that people can understand the claims of the Christian faith that he is proposing to them. So, that introduction, let's roll the tape, if you will, into Paul's trial. We read, The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Now, I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I've brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I might have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people have known me for a long time, and if they are willing, they can testify that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. But why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
All right, so pause. What is Paul doing? Well, he's off to a great start, right? He's introduced himself, and now he's made two key points in these last few verses. The first point is aimed at King Agrippa, who's Jewish, and also at anybody else who is Jewish who might be in that crowd on this day. Paul says, as a person who has also been raised in the Jewish faith, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm here at this trial. In other words, Christianity is not a new religion. It did not get invented by this guy named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Christianity is a very old religion. The Jewish scriptures are full of all these prophecies about a savior from heaven who's going to walk on the earth and suffer for us and die for us and rise from the dead for us. And all these ancient Jewish prophecies, these are the things that Jesus of Nazareth allegedly has done. But Paul also knows not everybody in the courtroom is Jewish. Not everybody in the courtroom knows anything about these things, including Festus and including any Roman officials that are there. And so for that group, Paul adds this additional point. Why should any of you consider it incredible that, hypothetically speaking, God could raise the dead? I mean, think about the concept of God. God, if there's a creator God who made the whole world by his power, if there's a controlling God who holds all of our destinies in the palm of his hand, if God exists and is that big and is that powerful, how hard would it be for God to raise one person from the dead? In comparison with everything else he's done, that's actually fairly easy. So Paul is making good points. Uh, he's got one good point for the Jewish people. He's got one good point for the Gentiles. But Paul is also reading the room. He's paying attention to what's going on around him. He's reading the room, and he is recognizing that there are some skeptical eyebrows being raised. There are people who are saying, wait, 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 this guy believes that God raised somebody from the dead? So Paul takes a step back, and he says, listen, guys, when I first heard it, I thought it sounded crazy, too. And so we tune back into his statement. Paul says, I, too, was convinced that I ought to do anything possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is crazy that this guy rose from the dead. No way. And so this is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companion. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. And I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, 
from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. I mean, would you be disobedient to a vision from heaven? So first, right away to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem and Judea and to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. And that is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. Pause again. What is Paul doing? Well, first, he's sharing his personal story, which is a great way to witness. Because if you think about it, it's really easy for somebody to write you off if they think that you are telling them what they have to believe. But it's much harder for somebody to write you off if you're just telling them what you believe, if you're just sharing your story of what your personal faith means to you. That's what Paul's doing. He's sharing his personal story. But in addition to that, Paul's also doing something else, and I wonder if anybody has noticed what it is. He's talking directly to King Agrippa as though the two of them are the only people in the room. Have you noticed this throughout the transcript? Like, there's dozens, maybe hundreds of officials in this room, and Paul is treating it like this is a personal chat between himself and his good buddy Agrippa, who he just has met. But he keeps using his name. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you. King Agrippa, you know, you're Jewish, I'm Jewish. It's because of the hope that our ancestors share that all of this is happening. King Agrippa. I was on the road to Damascus when this is what happened. I saw a bright light. And of course, King Agrippa, when a vision from heaven appears to you, you've got to take it seriously. There's maybe a hundred people there. Why is Paul so zoned in on King Agrippa? Well, the reason is because he's reading the room. Apparently, probably, Governor Festus, Roman Governor Festus, is leaning back in his chair with his arms folded and kind of a frown, and we're going to hear what Festus thinks about this in a minute, but Agrippa is leaning in and paying attention, and this is why. Agrippa, like his father, like his grandfather, like his great-grandfather, whose name, by the way, was Herod the Great, the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus, you remember evil Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus? This is his great-grandson. And in this whole line of Agrippas and Herods, they have one thing in common, is that this family was Jewish. So King Agrippa knows about the Old Testament. He knows these promises of a Messiah who's going to suffer for his people and die and rise. And he knows that on that Passover weekend, this is allegedly exactly what Jesus of Nazareth did. And he knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and raised in Galilee and did miracles and healed the sick and all of these things that the Bible had said. Jesus is checking all of the boxes to be the Jewish Messiah. And King Agrippa knows it. So, Paul presses the point. We listen back in. King Agrippa, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, the Gentile governor, Festus, interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. All your great learning is driving you insane. 
I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, Agrippa over here, he's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him, and I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Pause one more time. What is Paul doing? Well, first, he's remaining calm. Festus is yelling at him, you're a crazy religious zealot, you're insane. And No, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. I'm talking about historical facts, credible eyewitnesses, the Jewish scriptures that Agrippa knows about. There's nothing insane about this. And then Paul pivots back to Agrippa. He says, King Agrippa, back me up on this. This is what the Jewish scriptures say. This is what happened with Jesus. You know this. And now he makes his strongest appeal yet. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And it's just remarkable to see what's happening. Because remember, Paul's on trial. He's got chains all over him. He's standing in front of this courtroom and he's about to get shipped off for a trial before Emperor Nero. You might expect Paul to be pleading with King Agrippa for his life. But instead, he's trying to convert him to Christianity. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So here then is how it ends. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? There's a lot behind that statement, isn't there? He doesn't say, Paul, you're crazy, I refuse to believe it. He says, in such a short time, hundreds of people are watching me. Do you really think I'm going to convert to Christianity at this moment? But he's thinking about it. He's thinking about it. And Paul replies, well, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but that all who are listening to me today might become exactly what I am. Well, except for the chains. And that's it. This is the end of Paul's statement. So Festus and Agrippa stand up and leave the courtroom, and, and Paul's trial for now is over. So what do you think of his witness? Well, he did the two things we talked about, right? First, he stayed very calm and reasonable, and you can see the effect that that had on the whole courtroom. And then secondly, he also read the room. He paid attention to who was listening and how they were listening and what objections they might have, and he tried to speak these things in a way that they would be heard. He tried to be as clear as he could so people could get it. Now, we don't know what conclusions Festus or Agrippa might have drawn about Jesus of Nazareth in the end. But we do know what conclusions they drew about Paul, because Luke records their conversation for us. And this is what they said. This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. In fact, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But no one left that courtroom saying, Paul is a crazy religious nut and he has no idea what he's talking about. No one left the courtroom saying that. Why? It's because Paul's witness is a great example of what Peter encouraged in our second reading. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared to give an answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. And that's exactly what Paul did. So here then is the application question. Does this seem like something you could do? On the one hand, we're like, no, 
I could not stand in front of a courtroom of people in this huge trial and come up with all these things on the fly to say, are you kidding me? I could never do this. But then on the other hand, why not? Because when you take a look at Paul's defense, which we now have read and you've heard you know, the whole entire thing, um, this is not some masterpiece of rhetoric and like the greatest speech ever written. And this is not some brilliantly constructed logical argument that's flawless with no loopholes. All Paul is really doing is speaking from the heart, saying what he's seen, saying what he believes, and he's paying careful attention to his audience so that they, ha that they have every possible chance to understand what he's saying and get it. Does that seem like something that you could do? You probably won't stand on trial in front of a king and a governor, but you do know what it's like to feel put on the spot with your faith. I know that you do. Like, imagine this scenario, that you're talking to someone at a lunch break or a party or, you know, whatever, and you're, you're having a conversation, and it ends up becoming a spiritual conversation. And this is one of those times where you're like, this is kind of cool. This person is interested in my faith. And so I'm sharing what I believe and trying to explain it to them. And then as this conversation is happening, you notice that around you it's gotten a little bit quieter. And some of the nearby tables are maybe listening or some of the other people at this party are like, huh, I'm going to bring my drink over here. This sounds interesting. And now you've got like this, this sort of audience forming. Oh, no. <laughs> so now what are you supposed to do? Now the pressure's on. But in this situation, what do you do? Well, the good news is you don't have to unleash some fantastic piece of rhetoric and, and public speaking. You don't have to produce a perfectly constructed logical argument. All you have to do is speak from your heart and tell your story of what your faith means to you and then pay attention to who's listening to you and try to be clear. Maybe if they look like they have a question, you say, does this make sense? And talk in a way that they can understand. And then trust the Holy Spirit to bless your words just like he blessed Paul's words. Does that seem like something you could do? Well, at the end of the day, it's something that we've all got to do because it's what God did for us, right? There was a time for every single person in this room, there was a time when you were the skeptic. There was a time when you were the person far, far away from God. There was a time when not only did you have no idea what Jesus had done for you, but you didn't care. But at that time, God did not write you off. And God did not say, this is going to be too much work, I don't want to do this. And God also didn't say, you know what, the Bible's out there, it's publicly available information, why don't you just go, you know, figure it out for yourself? No. What did God do? He loved you so much that he came to you. He met you wherever you were. He engaged you in spiritual conversation. He exposed you to his word again and again. He brought you to the waters of holy baptism. And as God did that for you, what did he use to do all of those things? He used witnesses. He used other Christians who went outside of their box, outside of their shell, outside of their comfort zone. Maybe they didn't even know you. And yet God placed such a love for you as a fellow human being in their heart that they kept on sharing the gospel with you until by God's grace, faith appeared in your heart. And you became a member of God's family.
Brothers and sisters, we are all witnesses of God's grace to us in our own lives. And so now God simply calls us to take the next logical step. We can be the witness for somebody else. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.